From Hong Kong, this is Maya Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based on the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today, we have Greg Mjomskevich, co-founder and CEO of CapBase. Before that, he was CEO and co-founder of Swarm, a bot detection startup, which was bought by Integral Ad Science in 2016. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me on the show, Jeffrey. Greg, can you tell me quick, how did you make your way into startups? Uh, Well, I have a sort of roundabout way of making my way into the technology world in general. My parents are are both scientists and and my father specifically worked on supercomputing research for related to bioinformatics and computational chemistry. And we came to move from Poland to the United States when he was doing a postdoctoral research at a medical research center in New York. And so we were, my brother and I, we were surrounded by computers growing up. Uh, I learned to use a computer from a command line before there were GUIs. Uh, I I used the internet before HTTP took off. so I had a very sort of um, rich upbringing on the technology side, and, and I learned to program from a very young age. Uh, and I'd probably gone through most of the standard curriculum that you would do as, as a computer science uh, undergraduate student before I you know, could drive a car. So I never really wanted to study computer science necessarily because every time I tried to take a class, I was just very bored with it. And I realized it was something I could very easily teach myself or learn by doing, getting more practical experience. And I actually studied philosophy and economics and history in undergraduate. And I studied in philosophy in particular, I was focused on formal logic and uh, history and philosophy of science, methodology of science. And I I actually, you know, after going to school for a while and and realizing that uh, I I did this advanced master's by research called a BPhil in in philosophy. And after finishing that, I realized there was, I, I really didn't want to stay in academia and that that really wasn't the career choice for me. But I didn't go directly into technology. Um, I just spent some time, like I did some volunteer work, uh, and then sort of came back to the US and I realized like, okay, I, I, I don't, I like running water, I like electricity. Um, I don't like getting parasites, maybe doing development world work in the third world is not for me. Um, so it was kind of like my my third idea of what to do with my life. Um, but I knew I didn't want to work in big giant corporations. I, I think I watched the movie Office Space in the 90s uh, and read that cartoon Dilbert. Uh, and I really didn't want to work in a giant office building. So I knew I wanted to work for startups and that I wanted to be part of kind of the cutting edge of innovation on the business and technology side. You say you studied philosophy and now you're very technical. I heard that more often people with now in a technical working environment have not have that yeah, education, let's put it that way. And they have indeed like philosophy or arts or something else like that. What is it that brought you from 
philosophy to to technical besides of the things you already already said but like what do you think that philosophy helped you in your technical capabilities right now so when you're studying philosophy and in particular if you're studying formal logic it applies uh, more to computational logic and how to solve computational problems but in general philosophy teaches you to approach problems from multiple frames uh, multiple lenses of intelligibility multiple ways of framing the problem and view seeing the pros and cons at that kind of of different approaches it, it's not it and and when whereas a traditional computer science education teaches you this is how some algorithm works it doesn't necessarily give you any of the meta criteria of when this algorithm would be better than another algorithm them or how to think through those. Okay. The other thing I would say is in terms of success in technical careers, a lot of people who come from engineering backgrounds are not the best communicators and being able to understand both what is asked of you and ask clarifying questions and also communicate what you did or what you need with precision makes everything run much more smoothly. Uh, if you study philosophy in an Anglo-American philosophy department, you will effectively be trained to use language almost robotically, where you will write a term paper for a writing seminar, and it will be returned back to you where every sentence that was not uh, was sort of uh, extraneous to proving your point from a logical perspective was removed. You basically were asked to translate your paper to a logic proof and then any sentence that wasn't relevant to proving that proof was basically removed and then that's how you wrote your final paper to graduate so <laughs> would you advise all engineering class to 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 add some philosophy in their education or I, I think like critical thinking skills can be acquired through studying a variety of humanities subjects. Philosophy is just one of them. And I, I think engineers would be better off if they were more well-rounded uh, in that regard. And if you now, for instance, would hire an engineer, would you specifically look for that or uh, would you try to educate them on the job? I mean, we don't necessarily make uh, having a computer science degree or, or something like that a requirement for working for CapBase. And when I'm recruiting, I've had uh, one of my, the, the first time I was had a bunch of direct reports, my best employee was the guy who had gone to like community college and then dropped out and then taught himself programming while like living in the desert. Like that was the, by far the best employee. He's working at Google now. It's like a senior staff engineer. And then the and then I had this other employees that you know one of them was like a recent Stanford grad who was super. Uh, he thought very very highly of himself, but he did really poor work. Um, so it, you know I. It, but then I you know I also had uh, a a grad from Cal Berkeley who was really great um and also like a really good employee so it's it's sometimes you get people who have been you know go through a computer science program but they're not really good at problem solving necessarily they just were capable of doing the exercises in their classes 
to a de- you know to get decent grades and graduate. Okay, and I see that you you were in different product roles after graduation, senior product engineer and, and director of product. But then you started your first startup. How did you prepare yourself for that? Did you save up and made some little runway for yourself and then started, or you were doing on the side a little side project? And at one point, an investor came along and said, "Like, hey, this is this is nice. You should do this full time." How did that came about? Uh, for a while, me and my co-founder were neglecting our day jobs and uh, also neglecting our health and sleep schedules while continuing with our full-time jobs for a while. And because we were working all the time and not going out or not traveling, right? For like eight months, we saved a decent amount of money. Uh, By the time we went to selling the company, when we hit that point, uh, it was basically, uh, I was almost, I was pretty much out of cash. I was basically putting everything on a credit card so I could just pay rent with whatever cash was left in my bank account. Like we 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 were break even profitable with the handful of customers we had by the end of it. But we uh, could we could pay our contractor and pay our AWS bills. That was about all we had money for, and and we barely raised any money. I think we raised like seventy or ninety thousand dollars for the company from from investors. We never paid ourselves anything. We just reimbursed ourselves for expenses. And does that mean that the company was sold out of necessity because it wasn't viable, or was the company sold because somebody came along and said, "I find this very interesting," and they just gave you a big bag of money and said, "Yes, let's do it for this." Variety of reasons. Um, the first one was that sales was a hugely uphill battle for us. So we developed really highly accurate bot detection software. It was completely real time. Like we knew if the user was a bot in a few hundred milliseconds, uh, as opposed to other software, which requires aggregated data over time to identify what, what is or is not a bot, like some sort of historical picture of a traffic on an IP address. We didn't really require any training. And also our our software was completely passive. There, it was something like CAPTCHA where the user didn't know they were being tested in any way, shape or form. So. We developed fairly sophisticated technology, but bringing it to market was was rather challenging. The, the first was we needed to collect a decent amount of data, which then meant we needed to pay a decent amount of money to process and collect that data. That meant we had to identify, we couldn't really give away our service for free on a freemium model for very long, like we could do trials, but they'd have to be kind of with larger enterprises. The second piece was that we originally targeted financial services and advertising technology companies for selling the selling to selling to um, for a startup. In the case of financial services, like that, yes, they have infinite budget towards cybersecurity, like big banks, but they also will not do business with you if you're a startup unless you've been around for a couple of years and you have a few years of audit history and financial runway. Like they don't want a vendor relationship with someone that's about to go out of business. So then we go to ad tech. And in, in ad tech, what we realized that the effectively when it comes to vendor adoption within the ad tech space, the decisions are effectively made by agencies and agencies are the least 
educated players in the ad tech space, at least when it comes to vetting the application of sophisticated security technology to whether their ads are being shown to humans, they are not capable of doing so. Like they don't have the expertise or, or even like the technology in house to like set up tests for this. Uh, they make a lot of decisions based on relationships. By that, I mean, who took them out for dinner um, at a fancy steakhouse, to, to use a Mad Men example, um, or you know, who took them, who threw a nice party at the Cannes Film Festival and schmoozed them. They're not making decisions based on the efficacy of a particular set of software, nor are they even capable of vetting most of the software they are using. So because agencies call the shots, we didn't go to them first for getting market share. We went to the ad buying platforms. We went to the publisher revenue optimization platforms. The problem was there, you know, only a certain subset of those platforms would actually use our product. The reason is, you know, say you're an ad buying platform. If agencies are using that ad buying platform and the agencies want to use a lower quality vendor, that they're more comfortable with and they have a relationship with already, then that's going to create a giant headache for the ad buying platform. Because what the ad buying platform says is a bot doesn't agree with what the agencies think is a bot. So even if we in a head-to-head -head test showed huge results in terms of like, you know, a 10 or 12% lift in terms of the efficiency of ad spend on that platform, by using our data to filter out non-human traffic, they would still go with the other vendor because it, it ultimately like that wouldn't drive enough business and the agencies would it, like, like that improvement in efficiency wouldn't be enough to like move their bottom line enough to make it worthwhile to deal with the customer support headache that comes from having two disparate data sets. So okay. we couldn't beat them. So we joined them. <laughs> we actually sold. And we we could have raised the seed round. We did Y Combinator's program for super early stage companies. I think they're still doing it. It's called YC Fellowship. We could have raised the seed round, but we opted to sell because it, it really wasn't, it, I don't think it was, it would have been two or three years before we would have had like a competitive business and built a brand. Um, in the ad tech space. And it's sort of like, you know, so we sold at the end of that Y Combinator program, YC Fellowship to Integral Ad Science. Then I led up R&D basically on one of their three product lines, advertising fraud for a couple of years. Then they were bought by Vista Private Equity. Uh, I can tell you kind of more about that experience if it would be helpful, like the post acquisition even before that, uh, you worked on that a little bit over a year on that startup? We was started working, we started the research in February 2014. We incorporated in August of that year, and then I left Zarly in August of 2015, and then we sold in June of 2016. Okay, so it was quite a, a long sprint in that sense, and you already said it was quite uh, cash-strapped when you were doing that. What was your situation back then? Did you have a relationship? Were you single? Were you living in a big house or a shared an apartment? Well, yeah, that's, that's very funny. Um, I was single mostly at the time. I also I lived in a one bedroom apartment that wasn't huge, but was I mean bigger than a studio. Uh, and I pretty much just worked. And then I went to the gym that was literally on the corner by my house. 
the taqueria that was on the other corner by my house, the grocery store that was like a corner in the other direction, and a sandwich shop that was like also like within 400 feet of my apartment. I basically didn't leave like a two block radius of my apartment for weeks at a time. Just worked <laughs> and went to and went and went to the gym and went to the grocery store, ate tacos, ate sandwiches. Normally they would say go out and and yeah, talk to potential customers, but you weren't really doing that. How did you get your information? We knew we we knew a bunch of people in ad tech. And then we had advisors who were pretty much super well connected. Like one of them had built the one of the first programmatic ad buying companies. So, and then we just got on the phone with them. And then occasionally I'd fly to New York for a business meeting or, or like LA. But hmm. there, there were periods of the hardcore product development period where like I knew there was a demand for this product and I knew the shortcomings of the, the kind of pre-existing technology. I mean, there's a huge amount of wasted spend if you have to wait 24 to 48 hours to get your classifier results uh, of was your traffic, your ad campaign shown to a bot or not. So if, you know, and that, that could be several dollars of ad spend per user in that time. Yeah. Um, depending on how much that audience costs to reach and, you know, is it the holiday season, et cetera. And so delivering real-time results, we knew had a ton of applications outside of just ad tech, like you could use it to prevent comment spam. So we knew that like the core of our technology was valuable. We didn't really think that much about that in retrospective, right? Like what would I have done differently? I would have probably thought about go to market a bunch more before investing so much time in building. I would have also gotten a third co-founder who only did business development and sales. Because if you're selling to large enterprises and not, uh, you know, like even selling to small startups is way easier than selling into large enterprises. Correct. I have no idea how to do that still. Mm -hmm. I've, <laughs> I kind of do because I, at Integral Ad Science, I was like involved in a lot of customer education after the acquisition. But I still am not like a pro at it. I wouldn't hire me as, as being a sales, even a junior sales bro at a company. Okay. Um, that was, of course, your very first startup, your own baby. You had a co-founder for that. At the point that you made the decision to sell that and then at that point become an employee at the acquiring company, what did that personal to you? Because it's basically your baby, right? And then, of course, that product is being integrated in, in something bigger. Uh, did that motivate you or did that say like, hey, it's now being diluted in a bigger organization? I saw at first I was hopeful the opportunity that the product would have wider reach and that with additional investment of resources, the product would become better. That's not what actually happened, but that, that was my hope. <laughs> okay. What actually happened? Well, so when we were getting acquired, I mean, we were told basically by the chief product officer and the head of corp dev that we would integrate the product, then we would get a team to kind of work on sort of implementing some of the research we had already done to, to make it even better, like the research we didn't have time to sort of productionize. Uh, what happened in practice is that the organization had some pre-existing bot detection technology, the business 
business side and product side of the organization got feedback from customers that that wasn't sufficient. Like it was good, it was okay, but it wasn't good enough. And that was what was motivating the purchase. Now, the actual data science team that had developed the pre-existing technology wasn't really keen on doing the acquisition. And it and what happened after the acquisition is they had me and my co-founder report into that team, which effectively somewhat sabotaged the full integration of that technology. The other thing we discovered after the acquisition was that that organization had a ton of technical debt that they hadn't really practiced good engineering hygiene over the years, let's say, that they'd also churned through several CTOs. So there was no good technical leadership and there were a lot of silos where one system was kind of a blocker to anyone deploying anything efficiently. And if you finished a piece of code and you wanted to get it deployed, it would potentially take weeks. So all of the engineers were fundamentally demotivated. There was no feedback loop between it. I did my job and that translated into a customer being happy or I got to see it go live right away. And there, that feedback loop didn't exist. Mm. Um, so that was that that result, you know, that sort of institutional rot within the company made it so that every single piece of the uh, integration after the acquisition was really painful. Um, and a lot of decisions that you would expect would be very simple were very political because it was a large organization. By simple, I mean, like the decisions were were rational from a cost basis and didn't involve too much time investment or anything like that. At that point, you did that for two or three years? Well, so it went like this for a little more than a year, almost a year, a year and a couple months before the organization finally hired a CTO. Then that CTO finally gave me a team to run that could actually work on finishing the integration of the technology. I mean, they were, I mean, I don't think they ever got to running it on 100% of traffic because the, the <laughs> you can imagine how, how flabbergasted I was after two years and two months of working there. And I'm like ready, you know, to leave to start cafes. And there's, it's still only up to 75%. It's like, it's a JavaScript file that gets inserted into ads. It's not exactly rocket science to get this deployed <laughs> inside all of their traffic. And it would have had a huge business value if they did so. But getting the other parts of the organization to, to actually do this, there was a lot of institutional inertia. And uh, uh, I mean, frankly, just like bad management, like on the engineering side, on the product side, it was not a well-run company. And I, I would say that's generally true. The thing that is of companies in the ad tech space and the marketing technology space. I, I hate to paint that entire industry with broad strokes, but if the integral ad science was less bad than other ad tech companies that I'd consulted for in the past when it came to technology, but a lot of the problems that I saw there were kind of endemic of that industry. Um, and it was really demoralizing to work there, especially going from being an entrepreneur who does a lot 
and ships a lot of code, talks to customers, gets a lot done and feels satisfied by getting things done and moving the needle, constantly being in meetings and constantly having to argue for just doing really basic sort of standard best practices things like encountering resistance to that it was so demoralizing like i i almost quit before my earnout several times the only reason i stayed more than the two-year earnout was because they were being acquired by vista and vista was going to accelerate all my stock vesting uh so i decided to stay but that last two months i was just completely checked out and like I, I mean I almost like one time I, I, I it's like not things I like you know I'm proud to admit to but that job was so frustrating at times like I think one time I just like was in a conference call and just couldn't I was just like wanted I almost like threw my computer off my balcony this is just so frustrating <laughs> so that frustration at that point and i can totally understand that and thank you for the detailed description of that so basically that bad management that frustration drove you into doing a new startup how did you find that product idea or that problem to solve how did you get on that one well there a lot of companies are really bad at record keeping on the contractual and financial side and a lot of the software that exists for managing these things is effectively point solutions that where data has to be manually entered or re-entered between different systems like there are point solutions for incorporating a company there are point solutions for signing contracts there are point solutions for tracking your cap table there are point solutions for sending contracts with secure sending documents with secure access management and like access logs. There are point solutions for um, just storing and organizing contracts. Like someone might use something like ad hoc, like Dropbox or Google Drive, but they might use Ironclad. But none of these systems play nicely together. Like let's say you're hiring an employee and giving them stock options. In a, in a mature company, that process involves first like a attorney uh, drafting an offer letter with the correct equity language or the template that's getting used and filled out with the share count. That gets then handed off as a PDF, right? Like none of the variables are preserved or anything. It just gets handed off a PDF for signing, the hiring manager, the hiring manager throws it into DocuSign for the candidate to sign, then it ends up in their email inbox. And unless they manually move it to the right place, effectively, that contract is lost by the time due diligence rolls around two years later. Then there's several other contract processes here, like the board approval of the share grant, the actual stock option award or restricted share award agreement. And than purchase agreements because the employee might be buying shares as it as it as the the shares vests. Then also transactions to be processed, right? And then all of the same information for this employee share grant has to manually be entered into CapTable software. The employee's address and name and contact info that goes into the contracts also has to be entered into payroll, corporate credit card, insurance, all of these other services. So there's a lot of manual and data entry and re-entry. And it's frankly like in most early stage companies, the reason this all of this is super messed up and the reason they pay, you know, $50,000 or more sometimes to clean up their document room just before they're going through doing corporate housekeeping, basically before they go through due diligence for the first time is because, you know, they don't have an HR manager, they don't have a lawyer in house, and they don't have a CFO. And it's one or two of the founders doing everything themselves. 
and usually messing things up. Like I've seen this firsthand as an employee of companies. I've seen this as an advisor at companies, as an angel investor, as a founder myself. Of course, you've seen that, but did that, I also advise companies. I also am an angel investor in some companies and I also see that going wrong, but does that really give me the insights on where specifically that goes wrong. I talk to hundreds of founders. I also talk to lawyers. I talk to investment bankers who broker the sales of growth stage companies. It, it was my own experience plus the synthesis of talking to founders. And did you talk to those founders with this idea in mind to, to validate it? Or did you just have coffee with them unrelated to this and then this topic came up how did you do your discovery there my discovery was deliberate and related to this but it was really just around the experience that founders had maintaining records for their company and working with lawyers what what i discovered is that most the first time people found a company, most of them don't have access to lawyers. I'd say that like value add lawyers, most of them, you can find it like a business lawyer, let's say it's in the US and I don't know, it's Yale grads and someone points them to a business lawyer in Connecticut, like that business lawyer might know a lot about business law, but they know nothing about startups, right? Yes. Um, and so really like outside of boutiques run by people who worked in corporate law, startup corporate law shops, um, big firms, I mean, and besides the boutiques, pretty much everyone, like all of the expertise is contained in like 10 to 12 in the US in 10 to 12 big startup law firms. And gaining access to that network, it's a gated network. Like you have to have an intro from another investor or advisor, the law firms, you basically have to pitch the partner to take you on as a client because early stage clients don't make any money for the law firm. They only make money post series A. They're just opportunistically establishing the relationship early so that you automatically go to them when you have a series A and you're their lowest priority client. Like the associates are frankly told to ignore you uh, until they finish work for more high high value clients. So unless you're dealing, you're sending them anything relating to M&A or you're sending them things relating to fundraising, you, you, you really don't get very responsive service. Also, your lawyers don't volunteer information. You need to keep your company compliant and you can either Google things or ask them. And frankly, most founders are afraid to ask their lawyers because their lawyers charge them 800 to $1,000 an hour built in six minute increments. So every time they send an email, they're charged $100, like if it gets opened at all. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Indeed. It's a broken service model, if you ask me. And I mean, most I fundamentally also the other thing is that lawyers charge everything on a high value service pricing model. What they really should be doing is doing a mix of technology and services where they are building technology in-house. Some law firms might be sophisticated enough to do that, but most are not. And they're also fundamentally risk averse, the, the legal industry and, and, and especially all the, the more senior law partners and they're rent seeking and economic behavior. They're not innovators on in, in, in nature. They would rather keep doing the same thing and keep charging money for it, as opposed to making themselves obsolete by building something that's, that is more valuable than them as a service provider. So 
in terms of that industry, like it's like, well, lawyers, you know, I talk to lawyers and they recognize that like 75, 80, 85% of the work they're doing for early stage companies could be done with software, but lawyers weren't going to build that software. They're quite protective of their own uh, check. <laughs> right. Uh, and so that's, that's how we embarked on this, this project. Because I mean, frankly, if you think about it, uh, almost every, everything that you're doing in an early stage company. That is the documents and contracts for that are 100% templatized. Yeah. And they're usually customizable along, you know, five to 10 parameters, not anymore. It's not like uh, rocket science. And it's like a checklist of do you want this or do you not want this? Like, why would you want this? Why wouldn't you want this? And, and setting up this new company, you talked earlier before that you, at your previous company, you would have hired or would have gotten a third co-founder that does business development. Did you do that in this occasion? Did you have like three co-founders now or? Yeah, we originally had, we originally had a third co-founder who was a lawyer, but he left uh, like very quickly. Or, or left the project like a month in because uh, he decided to do his own company. Um, and I don't know, it's, I guess he had second thoughts or whatever. Um, so we originally had a third co-founder who was a lawyer, partially with the hope that he would help us potentially sell into law firms or through venture funds because he'd also been a lawyer for venture funds. So that, uh, that didn't work out as you wanted? Well, it wasn't necessarily like we were hiring him primarily for the business. We would have had him as a founder primarily for the business development side. It would have been for the legal expertise side. Yes. Now, we also in this case, I mean, it's not so much of a priority because we're not doing enterprise sales. We are selling to founders at early stage companies who effectively behave like consumers. There's one decision maker. It's the founder. There's no CFO. There's no board yet. Okay. How's it going so far? Well, we've been, we've been running a private beta and we, we have a bunch of customers and we're getting ready for general availability and, and launching our product on Product Hut in the next uh, couple of weeks. It sounds great. And is that self-funded or is there some angel investments or is there maybe already like a VC involved? So so we raised around 1.4 million in pre-seed and then we have a seed financing round that, that we just wrapped up recently that the uh, announcements shall come out soon in the press. Okay, congratulations on that one. And uh, then you start, really start uh, spending other people's money and then really the pressure is on. I always say when people say, <laughs> I raise around, like now the really pressure is on because you start spending other people's money and those they are expecting something in return. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely like we realized we have to get ourselves in gear to hit growth numbers. And uh, we've realized our existential crisis is, our existential problem is a growth problem now, not can we ship products. It's like when you first talk to investors uh, and you don't have a prototype or you don't have a product, you're selling them purely on team and dream. Like what is your vision? Who are you? Why can you build this thing? Or will you build something of value even if your first idea ends up being a complete flop? Um, like for example, Slack wasn't built, was built as a tool for someone. They were working on, I think like video games. Correct. And they didn't have a good work chat, yes. right? YouTube shot it as a, as a dating site, right? Yeah. We, at my last company, Swarm, like we realized we built all this 
AWS billing parsing and optimization tooling for ourselves so that we can make our own business unit economics profitable at like while processing tons of data at scale. And then we realized like after we sold the company that we could have also just worked on that and turn that into a product. Uh, and I've actually talked to a couple of companies. I, I think uh, this guy, my co-founder and I met in Washington, DC, he was basically doing exactly that. Like you just feed them your AWS bill and then they do, they come up with the recommendations. And then if you give it permissions to configure your AWS account, it'll just do the cost savings for you. Okay. Just in general, what advice you, if often hear going around when it comes to startups that you actually don't agree with? Uh, I think this whole idea of build something you're passionate about is it's like a, it's vapid advice and it's not very useful. Because? Um, because you should build things that, uh, how do I explain what, what's the best way to put it? Um, you should solve problems. Uh, I, I mean, that applies if you are like telling someone what to do with their life like to follow their passions or follow their dreams, but it's not always sound business advice. Like I'm passionate about music. Are there any good profit making music streaming or music services out there that have had good venture returns? You should read Tomasz Tomgus's article about this, the guy from Redpoint who analyzed all the data. Spotify, barely makes money. I don't know if they're even profitable. Pandora also doesn't make money. None of these services make money. So like, I'm passionate about music. Should I do a startup in the music space? No, they're like, it wouldn't even be a startup. It'd be like a lifestyle software company because there, there is no rational. There are very few, if any, rational venture backed business models in the music space. Now we can talk about why that is, but yeah. Ah, correct. Music is one thing, of course. On, on the other hand, if you're passionate about something as social entrepreneurship, it could help a lot of other people and not everybody is chasing the uh, the billion dollar valuation. But yeah, I, I can get what you're, which angle you're coming from. I think you need it. You need a problem that you're not necessarily isn't your deepest life's passion. You need a problem that is interesting enough for you to work in that problem space for at least four to five years of your life. That's a good way to put it indeed. Like it might be intellectually interesting. It might be a technical challenge. It might be a business challenge or like you learn a lot by working in this particular industry about how the world works. Like that, that bot, the problem of is is this user a human or not is both like it's kind of a philosophically interesting question it's technologically challenging to solve and then if you have all that data i mean the the code i wrote once we were acquired by integral ad science it ran 10 trillion times in a year like i have a very solid understanding of traffic on the internet and traffic patterns in the internet like how many unique devices are behind each IP address on average in the US, for example? Uh, how does that differ from country to country? Uh, what are device breakdowns from country to country? Like, uh, you know, for example, you could learn things like from these this artifact of this data, like Germany is very privacy conscious and supports open source software more than almost any other country in the world. People don't want to use Google because they are suspicious of Google products. They don't want to use right. Chrome. Okay. What is not a secret 
but most people don't know about you? Um, <laughs> uh, I that's a very I I collect antique mid-century modern furniture. It's indeed not something standard, right? I have a Vernier Pantone signed rug from the Mira Romantica series of fabrics and textiles from the 60s in the next room, for example. I've been kind of collecting things for a very long time. Like I kind of, if I had told a you know, teenage me what to do, it would have been to go and study industrial design because while I like building software, I think building physical things would even give me more satisfaction. So now I just admire the objects and books. And then I, I did, you know, the hunting on like eBay or Craigslist, like uh, estate sales to find kind of old vintage pieces, find them for cheap. Maybe they weren't in perfect condition. So I would sand them, refinish them. I'd have it in my apartment for like a year or two. I'd get sick of it. I'd sell it for like four times what I paid for it and then find something to replace it. And I, I did this with rugs until I have the rug that I think is the final rug. Like I don't need any other rugs. This is the best rug for me. It's beautiful, I can admire it. I can stop thinking about the problem of rugs. The final rug. <laughs> Sounds like a band name, right? <laughs> ultimate ultimate carpet, carpet. The, the ultimate band name, okay. If there's something you want people to take away from this talk, what is it? Well, when you're going to start a company, you should think about what your actual exit horizons are. And it, you should think about what you want and what stage of life you're at. And have that conversation earnestly with your co-founders and business partners. Because I've worked for lots of startups over the years. I've seen co-founder disputes with people leaving. I've also seen startup founders that uh, they they didn't they were too wealthy before they started a company, so they didn't have any real incentive to um, have a meaningful exit. They kind of just played with investors' money until they pivoted the company into nothingness. Um, whereas, you know, instead of executing one of those pivots, while there was still a business there, they could have probably sold it for $30 million. And my, you know, 2% of the company I had in shares wouldn't have been worth absolutely nothing. But because they had a reasonable amount of wealth from being, you know, kind of earlier employees at big tech companies in Silicon Valley, they didn't really have the same incentive structure I did as a 25 year old. And so uh, joining the company. And so if you're first, you know, if you're one of the first hires at a company, if you are starting a company and working with co-founders, you need to have that conversation with the, the, the people who are running the company, you know, if you're an employee or with your co-founders, if, if you're starting a company with them. Uh, and otherwise, you know, it's like, I guess, I guess this advice, you know, like an extension of that advice would be um, you should vet if you're going to go work for a startup, you should vet the co-founders as much as they vet you because you're trading effectively, you're taking less in salary in most cases to go work for a startup. Like if you're one of the first 15, 20 employees, you're not getting paid market rate. So effectively you're trading your time for equity that might be worthless. And 
if if the founder tells you like this is what the market is this is how much value we think we can like extract from that market and has an earnest conversation with you that will be very telling as opposed to if they tell you you know like a very delusional thing where every they tell you that everyone at the who works the company is going to be a millionaire and it's going to be worth billions of dollars like with no grounding as to like why that's true that's indeed a very interesting viewpoint that uh, a lot of people indeed when they join a startup forget i want to thank you for your valuable insights and your sharing of your lessons learned in startups for the listeners although the rating system of podcast is hideous if you like this maya cooper series you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers Thanks Mizuho Crowdbrain Hong Kong for being the venue sponsor of this episode and thank you for Copy Ventures for making this series possible. If you have any suggestions in guests for this podcast, let us know in the show notes, uh, our contact details. And this is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful.